You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. With just over two months to the official end of our 175th anniversary, it seems appropriate to take some time to speak with not just one president, but three. While the role of president is considered an honorary position as titular head of the institution, it is the highest accolade any member can achieve. Each of the institution's past presidents has not only spent years actively volunteering within the institution on regional and divisional boards, council and trustee board, but has also made a significant contribution to their specific field of engineering. Our most prominent past president is, of course, George Stevenson, the father of the railways. But we have had 134 past presidents since George, working in areas such as steam turbine and jet engine design, tribology and materials applications, hydraulic systems and power generation, to mention but a few. Although they are only in office for one year, they are kept extremely busy, not only ensuring the institution is run effectively through the executive team and that strategic and financial objectives are achieved through our various boards, but they also represent us beyond Birdcage Walk, working closely with presidents from other PEIs to raise the profile of engineering, as well as engaging with politicians and industry leaders to address societal challenges. You would think then that the chances of getting three of them in the room together would be rather low, but we know how to pull a few strings here at Impulse to Innovation. In today's episode, I talk with presidents past, present and future about how they see the role of I'm a key president, why having a strategic plan for the future is so vitally important, our relevance to society in a digital world, if we can ever have any impact on government policy, and why the institution sees equality, diversity and inclusion as the responsibility of all its members. I began by asking immediate past president Peter Flynn why he felt engineers needed to do more to invest in R&D development. Peter, Phil and Giles, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to come on the show and talk to me today. It is a rare privilege to have presidents past, present and future in the room together. As we are just over halfway through our 175th anniversary year here at Impulse to Innovation, we thought it would be a really nice opportunity to capture your thoughts and views on where we've come from and where we're going as an institution. So, Peter, as immediate past president, I'd like to come to you first. You marked your 2021-22 presidential year with a focus on innovation and R&D, and you questioned whether or not we, as an engineering community, were doing enough to invest in future technology development. As we came through the height of the pandemic, we saw a tsunami of technology emerging. 
to address all kinds of global problems, but particularly around COVID, ventilators and CPAP devices, telehealth systems, the application of mRNA vaccines, all becoming commercialised within a matter of weeks and months rather than the typical years we're used to. Do you feel we are at a seminal moment in time for technology research and development? And do you think engineers now have more opportunities to influence how we invest in R&D? Yes, uh, Helen Thor, thanks very much for the introduction. And uh, the point I was making uh, in my presidential address uh, was that the UK as a nation is not investing enough in R&D. And we, we typically spend somewhere around 1.7% uh, of GDP uh, on research and development. Uh, and that compares with an average for OECD countries of about 2.4%, and some countries where it's as high as uh, 4%. Uh, and that point still stands. Uh, and in particular, I think we're rather weak in late-stage uh, scale-up, uh, which is, is, is as much about funding as it, as it is about technical issues. Uh, but what the COVID pandemic has shown uh, and, the, and it's very rapid scale of show in what can be achieved when you put our mind to it. And it, it's as much as it's about organisation uh, as it is about money or technical yeah. issues. Uh, and it's also shown the importance of scale As of this morning, for example, uh, the world has administered or generated uh, 12.2 billion doses of COVID vaccines uh, since the early part of uh, last year. And I think this, this position has strengthened our hands as engineers. Uh, but note that it's not just a sort of technical issue, it's a financial and an organisational issue that has enabled us to get to this point. Thanks for that, Peter. And and I, I absolutely agree. I think engineers are playing such a big role now in making both the technical and financial decisions, aren't they? That I think this is something that we're going to see more of in the coming years, most definitely. Yeah. Well, certainly in the case of COVID, the, the, the uh, laboratories that, um, uh, that originated and did the science, if you like, to, uh, to generate the, uh, the vaccine, they can typically, as I understand it, use about 1,000 doses a month. Uh, you compare that with, with the need, which is of the order of billions, millions or even billions of, do of doses per month. In the population. Yeah, and, and certainly I, I, I was talking recently to some of our members from the pharmaceuticals group within the institution and the, the amount of work that they're involved in, in terms of the process side of, of developing these technologies is, is quite incredible, really. So, Phil, if I might come to you, now you've just stepped into the role really um, as president. It's about three months or so as we're doing this recording. Um, and you've chosen building the future as your theme. Now, of course, we, we've been looking back over the institution's 175-year history in terms of both technological advancements and our, our members' achievements as well. But what does building the future mean for mechanical engineering as a profession, particularly looking at the perspective of where we've come from in the last 175 years? Yeah, Helen, thanks for the question and, and picking up on the theme of my presidential address of, of building the future. So, I mean, when the institution started 175 years ago, the world was dramatically different. Uh, and the institution's early history was marked by the rapid expansion of the rail network, for example, yeah. and also the, the widespread uh, increase in factory mechanisation. That was the technology leap at the time. Um, we've referred to it since then as the first industrial revolution. 
And the engineers at the time led the way with their pioneering work. Um, we're now living in a world where things are also changing incredibly rapidly. We have Industry 4.0 opening up with so many new possibilities. And engineers still have a vital part to play in terms of supporting this and, and also enabling the next generation of engineering development. Uh, the last few years of the global pandemic have been a, a really bruising time for mankind, I think we can say. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think we have really shown our resilience and spirit of mutual support in getting through it. And I would especially like to commend the work of our COVID-19 task force and, and the PICS group in their endeavours to deliver lasting solutions to combat infection control going forwards. Um, they've made a vital contribution to improving the world through engineering, and we should all be grateful to them for that. So as we reflect on building the future, I think we need to look to our strategy to provide a, a sound foundation for our operations. Uh, to enable that, we've established the four pillars of uh, inclusion, integration, innovation, and impact. And then using our strategic enablers, we will be able to start to build on those to formulate and implement our future focus. And I'm sure Giles would have a few things to say about that in yeah, a while. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, look forward to it. Um, Engineers have they've contributed so much to society and there are really some fantastic groundbreaking work being done. And I've recently also attended some of our challenge events and have been simply blown away by the level of engineering innovation and team spirit that's really on display there. And that's just one aspect of the work being done by the institution to promote and showcase engineering excellence. So I, I think we can be really proud as an institution to be supporting all these activities and providing a framework to our members to be more active in their chosen areas yeah. as we as we grow the institution into the future. Yeah, well, I was I was reading the other day that the the UN Commission for Science and Technology for Development they they're predicting that the new and emerging technologies market represents about $350 billion by 2025, and and it could grow over 3.2 trillion according to them, in terms of groundbreaking technologies in the coming years. So there's there's certainly a lot ahead for us as a, an engineering community to be developing new technologies and, and new ideas. And uh, you you also mentioned there, Phil, the, the, the challenges. And of course, our last episode was the railway challenge. We had a fantastic time there, seeing the enthusiasm of, of these young engineers building what could be, you know, technology that will be in locomotives in the next 10 to 15 years. So it's it's great to see we're at the, the centre of that as an institution. Absolutely. We live in challenging times and, and almost the sky's the limit in terms of what we can now aim for in terms of uh, future engineering innovation and development. So, uh, and the challenges provide a brilliant mechanism for that. Uh, was at the Formula Student uh, Challenge over the last weekend. And the, the developments that we've seen there is in the areas of electric vehicles, in terms of autom uh, autonomous vehicles, it's just incredible. I mean, we're, we're, we're making leaps and bounds of development in those areas, which will surely feed into, into the, the future engineering challenges that we need to resolve in those areas. So uh, groundbreaking stuff and really exciting to see it. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, Giles, 
you've only been announced as as our president for 2023 24 in the in the last month so congratulations on that i know through your involvement on trustee board that you've been very much focused on the governance review over the last few years and you've obviously been fundamental in driving forward the new strategic goals that phil just mentioned uh, particularly around membership and impact as chair of stratcom so why do you feel supporting the institution's members promoting engineering and informing opinion are strategically important for a, an organisation such as the Amici. Well, thanks, Helen. Uh, well, firstly, to say it's a, it's a huge honour to be elected uh, to become uh, the Amici's next president. Uh, and as you say, we've been working really hard over the last couple of years to really provide clarity and develop our organisational strategy um, which is so fundamental for any organization, uh, particularly a large charity like ours, um, to, to have clarity over that. Yeah. And we've really looked at it from the perspective of, yes, we're a professional engineering institution, uh, but we're also a charity, like I said. And, and that's why you'll see in our strategy moving forward, there are two important elements to that. There's, there's us being a, a PEI, and that's all about supporting, developing, registering, representing our members, um, technicians, engineers, like all over the planet, to be basically the best engineers they can be, um, so that they're competent to go out there into the world and you know make sure that we're addressing those global challenges that we've mentioned already. Yeah. But then the second part to it's also about making sure we're harnessing the power of those members, the power and influence of those members to make sure that we are promoting engineering and a benefit of society. We are getting our messages out there about the innovation that's coming, making sure that governments, public bodies, the general public, like anyone that has an influence uh, on these things, we have a message to provide to them and our strategy will be focused going forwards around being really effective in in making sure that we get those messages across clearly. Yeah, and you've all touched on there about about building, you know, we talk about standing on the shoulders of giants, but building on, on our legacy so far as an institution and, and what that will look like going forward. So it's it's nice to hear that from the from the three sort of years of, of presidency that you're all you're all following. Now I appreciate that that there's an awful lot going on in the world at the moment. We are facing some immense challenges right now. Global health and population size, food and water insecurity, climate change and pollution, just to name but a few. In fact, I was reading that the UN cited 20 different global challenges facing civilization. Of course, some might say engineering and technology has played a sizable role in creating some of those problems in our history. But equally, each generation of engineers are constantly looking for ways to improve or mitigate these challenges through technology innovation, as you've all just highlighted. Do you think that engineering and particularly mechanical engineering can address some of these challenges? Uh, And how do you see the institution uh, and indeed you in your presidential role and leading the way in addressing these issues? Well, Helen, perhaps I could make a comment. Um, In in my presidential address, I um, I pointed out that engineering contributes very directly uh, to the, uh, the global challenges that the UN cites. There were 17 at that time, so the numbers obviously gone yeah. up. Uh, and at that point, 
uh, I felt that five of them were bang in the middle of our sort of area of activity. Uh, and as time has gone on and, you know, I've been more involved in the last 12 to 18 months with the work of the institution, uh, I've come to the view that we can contribute to a lot more than those in one way or another. Uh, but I think the whole point of our impact strategy uh, is to highlight the very profound effect that engineering can have on society. And, you know, as I, as I look around my desk here, there are simple things like rulers, which uh, a ruler which um, has some sort of molding. Uh, there's a tin can, which has got quite a lot of engineering in it. There's, there's a router, uh, and that has got a lot of engineering in it, and so on. Um, but, you know, in our everyday life, think we are surrounded by things that have been created by engineering. Uh, and in particular, I think it's important to point out to young people the impact they can have if they join the engineering profession on all aspects yeah. of life. And if I can jump in there, the one of the things we've been really keen to get across is that people have said to us that, like, you know, why why do we have an impact strategy? What is the important aspects of promoting engineering and influencing, etc.? And um, and we've thought long and hard about that and. The, the clarity that I think come from that on this subject is that we obviously have many members internationally that are directly working on those challenges that um, uh, the UN cites. You know, they, they, they will be involved in academic research, in industry, in business, uh, where, where their role is to directly benefit th those things. Yeah. But then there's also a lot of our other members that might not be directly involved in in you know, reducing the, the effects of climate change, for example, they, they may just be working in industry, providing services to uh, to people like as part of, you know, making their lives better. So they, whilst they might not have a direct effect on reducing the effects of climate change, in the work that they do, we want to be really clear with people that actually as an engineer, you know, our code of conduct, you know, the whole point of being a registered professional engineer is that you do your engineering sustainably yeah, um, so that you don't make anything worse. And I think that's one of the messages you'll see coming out of the institution much more strongly in the future is that, there, you know, like there are members contributing in both ways to those things, like which we obviously, you know, value immensely and helen if i could just jump in and maybe add to that i mean the 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 cop 26 um uh, focus that we had last year as an institution was on some of those critical areas i mean we we focused on four main areas energy transition clean transportation cities in the built environment and then finally infectious disease control and i think all of those areas are key areas that we have identified from a global perspective, you know, engineers have a vital role to contribute towards. Just would like to say that I think, you know, our learning society activities give us a tremendous vehicle to allow us to actually to, to work on those, to inform society and in government yeah. in the critical areas. And I will continue to try to promote those during my presidential year, as I'm sure that Giles will, as he picks up for next year. Yeah, I, th I think um, you you certainly hit a point there that um, the the contribution that engineers are making today, I think we are much more aware of our sustainable cr credentials and 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 ensuring that we use our resources to the best ability. And as you rightly said, Giles, we you, it's uh, and I think you you too, Peter. Actually, it's not just about the the actual physical technology you can see, but it's the supply chain and the processes that go into supplying 
the the companies that make the the rule that you've got on your desk and the tin can and so on and so forth. So there's a much bigger community that is contributing to to these um, kinds of efforts and these challenges than perhaps people realise. Yeah, well, I think it's generally a reckon that about 25% of the population is, is actually directly involved in in making things. Yeah, something a physical product. Should yeah, be I, there are so many people involved in in that sort of process. I think it's very important to recognise yeah. that, Peter. Absolutely, and it leads quite nicely actually on onto my next question because I think engineering it still struggles, doesn't it, with its image, its 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 relevance to society across the globe. And what what do you think that that we are doing wrong? Perhaps, or what could we be doing better to improve the perception of engineering, particularly as a career, for example? Well, I, I've got fairly strong views on this, and uh, and uh, I have spoken to communications specialists about this. And, and the conclusion I've come to, which might be a bit uncomfortable, is I think engineers are being too timid. Uh, I think we should be more outspoken. Yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, when it comes to things like uh, climate change, for example, the point I've repeatedly made is that the, the bulk of the issues related to climate change will only be solved by engineers uh, and that's um, and people yeah. accept that and I think we should be you know more outspoken in saying so uh, and, and by doing so we also encourage uh, you know, more people to take notice of the engineering profession uh, and uh, and potentially more young people uh, to join us. Helen, if I could jump in, I'd, I'd like to second that 100%. I mean, I think there's a general lack of public awareness of the major contribution that engineering plays in generally supporting and shaping society. And, and let's face it, I mean, we, we all know that engineering is the great enabler in this technological age. Yeah, most definitely. As Peter's already mentioned, that engineers are not necessarily the best at blowing their own trumpet. And I, I think we do need to be more vocal in promoting our achievements and, and also taking more credit for the significant efforts that we that we do put in. Um, maybe I can just sort of just expand on that. I, one area I think is really critical in terms of actually shaping opinion is is the work we do within STEM. I mean, STEM is a key area for us. Yeah. It, uh, it, you know, we need to inform and inspire the next generation of engineers and show them what an exciting career proposition engineering can be. Um, and that the, in the institution, uh, I mean, we rightly believe that education is fundamental and we want to inspire our members to actually get out there and get involved and create a positive impact on the next generation because they will then they will then create the public opinion that we need that allows us to receive more recognition for the tremendous role that we play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's a really um, interesting point, this, uh, because... Actually, the institution's done quite a lot of research in this area uh, of STEM education and what attracts people, particularly young people, into engineering over the last sort of 10 years. And, and really what that research says, if you try and sum it up very succinctly, is that, um, you know, the people that go into engineering are essentially naturally inclined to do so because of their backgrounds and, yeah. and maybe uh, they have... Uh, uh, an influence within their family or in their school environment, etc. That you know, for mechanical engineers, you know, you, you those that do maths, those that do physics, you know, you sort of naturally gravitate towards being a mechanical engineer. Um, and and I think the the that's the challenge for us. The challenge is how do we become attractive to those that aren't naturally inclined to be engineers across the whole of the STEM domain? Yeah, and. And, and if you flip that round, it's actually a massive opportunity because 
if we want to improve the numbers of people going into engineering, you know, it's really about that inclusivity point, you know, by being more inclusive of people that are not naturally inclined to be engineers to, to maybe broaden our uh, horizons in, in terms of the sorts of people that, you know, that do engineering and the sorts of people that work in engineering companies that aren't necessarily engineers or technicians, but they are involved in engineering, which is a massive amount of people. Uh, that Through that inclusivity, I think you'll then grow the diversity and think about how many people then we could attract into the profession. I think that's really the opportunity that uh, we have ahead of us. Yeah, Giles, I, uh, you may reference that, of course, to to our seminal piece of work, which was Five Tribes, and and the fact that we we identified the fact that many young people who are not in, innately attracted towards science and technology actually still have the capacity to come into our profession in different in different ways. Um, and yes, I think I think you're right there that we we do need to be. Uh, associating ourselves with with other areas of creativity and innovation that will enable these people to gravel, gravitate towards engineering as a as a, a perhaps a career in the future. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Giles, is we need to break the mold of our preconceived ideas in terms of what makes an engineer. And and by doing that, then we open up the opportunity to to so many more people who have maybe not considered a a, a career in engineering, but would be very capable in engineering, would and would thoroughly enjoy the career actually if they were given an opportunity to go into it. Yeah, exactly. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. You know, it, 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 we we've talked in the past about the pipeline and the leaky pipeline, so those coming into engineering and then going off and doing other things. That you know, that's that was part of that research as well. But the problem isn't necessarily the leaks. That is part of the problem, like people going into engineering and leaving. But the main problem is the fact that the the flow into the pipe is the same every time. We've got to think differently about the flow into the pipe, you know, (laughs) using a mechanical analogy, uh, because that's what makes, that's the game changer. How do we do that better? And I think that faces the whole industry, the whole of the profession, you know, we've got to work out how we do that. Yeah, and I think it's it's going to be an ongoing thing. I mean, every generation of engineers, we could go back for decades and we've, we've been facing this problem for a long time. And I think you're right. We, we're now at a point where, following on from COVID, demonstrating how engineers can turn around a situation extremely quickly. We need to ride that wave to kind of demonstrate that it's it's a, a place where anybody can come in and, and be involved and, and have a seat at the table to to you share their experiences and their their knowledge in that way you brought up the issue of um, diversity and inclusion there Giles and the institution has been putting quite a lot of emphasis on equality diversity and inclusion recently it published its dni strategy in 2021 it has uh, inclusion as one of its key values which phil mentioned in our opening conversation both staff and members have been taking part in a series of training courses to improve their understanding of DNI issues, and, and I've been one of those members who's actually been on that. So I've I've been uh, gaining quite a lot of insight into what's going on. But do you think, as an engineering body, it's it's actually our responsibility to be asking members to to take up that kind of training? Is it not the job really of of the companies that they work for? to be providing that and and what impact do you think the institution can have on EDNI in the workplace if any at all well i, I think uh, this is all about how we interact with each other and how we treat each other uh, within the setting uh, of, the, of the institution 
Uh, and that is a, a somewhat different setting to business. Uh, and of course, not everyone who's an active member belongs to a company uh, anyway. Uh, and I think the, the, the training course we, I, I took part in also is as much about the dialogue during the sessions themselves as it is about the, as it were, the taught material. But I, I definitely think it's our responsibility to create the best possible uh, DNI environment within the institution. Uh, and to, if possible, certainly possible, and I think it is possible, uh, to make it an exemplar that can be uh, read across uh, to other settings and from which people can, can learn uh, and gain something for their, for their everyday yeah. work. Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd fully support what Peter's just said. And maybe just to build on it, um, I, mean, I mentioned in my presidential address the, the fact that, that our values and behaviours need to be a, a foundation stone of, upon which we execute our activities. And I don't think we can necessarily leave that vital aspect to the companies that our members work for. Um, as Peter's already mentioned, I mean, not all um, of our members will have an opportunity to receive directly an, a, a DNI training. Yeah. Um, and the environment that we actually, they function in within the institutions necessarily in completely analogous to the environment that they're actually in from a work point of view. Um, but if we do fundamentally regard this as being a foundation stone, then we need to provide the training and the skills to our members to actually allow them to enact it. Yeah, that, I think that's a fair comment, Phil. Yeah, definitely. This is such a key issue. It's a really great question uh, and an opportunity to be able to talk about this. This is one of the most important issues the institution and other institutions like it face going forwards. Like, and we cannot say that more strongly. You know, the world is changing around us. The landscape socially, the way that human beings interact with each other is massively changing. Social media has a massive effect on that, obviously. And if we are not providing the support to our members and the way that they interact in their personal lives, in their working lives, etc., um, uh, that you just can't rely on it to happen naturally. You know, that's one, been the great thing that's come out of the workshops that I think all of us have been participating in. You know, if if organisations think they can do it naturally, they'll fail. Yeah. Like, you need to provide the support. There's so much to learn out there. And I think all of us and those that have done the training so far have seen, like, how much there is to learn. And, and, and it's really opened all of our minds up uh, about uh, this subject. And one of the best things about the whole thing that I've seen in the feedback has been, you mentioned the fact that it's been staff and members doing this training together at the same time, which I think is one of the first times this has happened like yeah. in our institution, like something like this being done. And, and that was one of the most amazing things about it because it's really focusing on one of our key um, enablers that we've laid out, which is members and staff working working in close partnership together to achieve our objectives as an organization and if we can all learn together and find different ways of doing things like we will be way more successful um and and yes it's absolutely our responsibility and the best thing about it is that in us doing this everyone that's a member or a staff member etc anyone that takes advantage of this then can go back into their their, their their personal life or their working life, et cetera, and, and use that learning to benefit them, themselves, uh, you know, outside of the institution. 
which is fantastic. Yeah, it would be nice to, to to enable people to to do that, to feel confident that they can use it in other aspects of their life. You say there, Giles, about the first time really that staff and and members have have kind of come together in this way. And and if we look at the 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 demographic of of our members and staff, predominantly our, our staff are female in uh, in many areas of what we do and of course the majority of our members are male uh, and likewise we've only had three female presidents in the last sort of 20 years uh, and we've never had uh, anyone from the black or ethnic minority community as a, a president of of the IMACI so there's still a lot of work for us to do isn't there I, I think there is Helen but but I I would stand behind all the points that Giles has made about the the DNI training that we've delivered I think it has been one of the best training modules I I've ever been on, uh, delivered by a trainer who is passionate about her subject and delivers it in a really interactive way. So uh, I think, you know, it's not necessarily a subject that that the participants have found particularly easy to, to get involved in and discuss. But I think I, the training sessions I've been on, we've had some really open and frank discussions that have really, really helped. Yeah. And to have that dialogue taking place between the members and the and the staff, I think has been an additional bonus. And I, I really, really sort of hope that we can roll this out um, because its effectiveness will be seen the, the more we can spread it across the across the institution. We've got the second tranche running at the moment. The third, third tranche is due to roll out quite soon, I understand. And it's an excellent, excellent way for us to really embed principles of DNI in the culture that we want to see in the institution. Yeah, most definitely. I, I, as I said before, I'm, I'm doing, I'm about halfway through the course at the moment and it's been really enjoyable uh, and really insightful to be able to, to get other people's perspectives uh, on the world, which is great. Now, I, I've mentioned the word impact several times, and I know you have as well, during our chat today. And it, it's also been picked up as one of the four I'm a key strategic values in terms of what we do as an institution and how we make things happen. It's very difficult uh, with so many engineering institutions and indeed thousands of charitable organisations to try and make ourselves heard and have impact. So what are your thoughts on on how we generate that impact, particularly from a, a government policy and a regulatory perspective? And how do you see your roles as presidents, past, present and future, in ensuring the institution is heard, is the go-to place for advice and has its ideas and recommendations acted upon? Well, it is a very important subject, and it's one that members talk to 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 us or presidents about quite a lot, actually. And uh, well, first of all, I think what, anything that we do has to be well researched. Yeah. Um, I'm stating the obvious here, but it, <laughs> you need to do your homework. Um, and um, and there are some situations where it's better for us to go on our to do it on our own, uh, and there are some situations where it's best to. Co- to cooperate with other institutions or the Royal Academy or whoever. Um, and that, was, that depends on the subject. Um, and then I think it's very important that there is a clearly clear and easily digestible message uh, and that, um, you know, that, that, the, that the facts of the situation are, are presented in a way uh, which is straightforward and can be understood uh, by politicians or policymakers or whatever. Um, but it, but also it's something you need. We need to stick at it. Uh, a lot of it comes through contacts and confidence and creating a track record and things like that. And it's 
it's one of those subjects where you've just got to keep bashing away at it, you know, for, for, for a long period of time. Um, and in terms of the president's role in that, I mean, I, I personally think that, that the president should have a strong personal upfront role in that type of work. I, I think it's one of the sort of fundamental uh, requirements of the job, if you like, to, uh, to, be, to be out up front yeah. uh, on these sort of issues and, and be able to articulate things you know, in a clear and compelling Absolutely. way. Maybe I could just jump in, Helen, and just, uh, I mean, fully stand behind what Peter said. And we do need to maximise the impacts that our members are having in terms of promoting engineering, informing opinion and stimulating the innovation that we need to benefit society. Uh, just to maybe highlight a recent example of influencing government. Uh, so Peter and myself had the honour to attend this week um, a an event at the UK Parliament uh, entitled Living with COVID. And that was a really excellent opportunity, kindly sponsored by Amanda Soloway, the MP, to for us to actually to to highlight the work that's been done both by the IMACE but also our partner organizations in terms of developing sort of effective in, infection control devices moving forward. Yeah. And and I think we need to be looking for more opportunities to work together in a collaborative nature with other PEIs, other engineering bodies, to strengthen the impact of our work. I mean, you mentioned impact. An impact, if if we just try to impact on our own, then we'll be a rather quiet voice. If we link together with bigger bodies, wider bodies, then the voice is a lot louder and it has far more of a chance of actually being listened to. Yeah. So I think that we, we need to progress in these areas. And I I'm actually trying to be as active as I can working together with the other PEIs to get some increase in the collaboration that we actually achieve. Um, and so let, let's see what comes out of it. But I, I do think it is an important area for us to focus on uh, to be more effective in that in that impact aspects of of our voice being heard. Yeah, absolutely. Giles? Uh, I, yeah, I feel quite well prepared for this because I've just come off a strategy committee meeting that I chair <laughs> uh, where we were doing a deep dive discussion on this uh, subject. Uh, and um, I mean, like for me, there are three things, right? And actually, uh, quite fantastically, Peter and Phil have already covered two of them. So yeah, absolutely. Um, as Peter said, it's you've got to have uh, a, a a message, you know, which is well-researched, et cetera, the contents that you're delivering as part of that message has to be high quality um, from a technical perspective, et cetera. And I think that's one of the areas that we've always been really strong yeah. at because we've been able to harness the power of our, our staff and our members uh, that have that expertise. So that's always been something we've been quite good at. Um, and then, yeah, Phil couldn't have said it better. It's about partnership. It's This is not about doing it on our own. This is about strategically partnering with organizations in a structured way, not just in the UK, but internationally as well. And that's one of the areas of focus we're going to uh, uh, get into going forwards. We've, we've been good at doing that in, in the UK. Uh, we need to expand how we do that in terms of our formal partnerships um, internationally, particularly where we've got... Uh, Parts of the world work with, with most of our international members. So yeah, those two are absolutely key. The third one for me, the really important part of all of this, which I think is the area of biggest opportunity for improvement, is around the way that we communicate that message. Yeah. You know, you think you talked about 175, you know, years of history. 
you know, uh, a lot of our communication methods in the past have been through journals and, and uh, you know, written media, et cetera, um, face-to-face meetings. And, you know, the, the world is just a totally different place now. And, and actually, again, you, you don't get to be good at this by chance. You actually have to invest in this capability to be good at yeah. it. I be good at stakeholder management, be good at communications, um, you know, like, and, and bringing in people into the organization that are experts in those areas um, is going to be so important going forward, particularly in a digital space, because obviously digitally, online, um, the way the world is communicating now, and, and that is why improving our digital capability is one of the key strategic enablers going forwards. Um, so all three of those things are really important on the subject. Yeah, Giles, I think you make a, a valid point there, particularly going forward in terms of our digital responses. We, we, we're very strong, aren't we, when it comes to things like our journals and so on. But, but now we have to be very agile in terms of our responses to these things and, and be able to communicate the doing of things. It's not just about kind of making recommendations, but demonstrating, as as Phil said earlier on, demonstrating that that these things can be done. And and I think that's where perhaps, you know, into your presidency and going forward, it will be more about that that demonstration of uh, and leading by example, won't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Phil and Peter, you are one year uh, in office and when you're out of office, you must feel like it, it passes so quickly when you're you're kind of just about to get into it, and then uh, you know it's it's rolling on to the next president. But what do you feel has been your legacy so far? Uh, obviously, Phil, you're only halfway through, but where do you feel that you've made an impact in in the last uh, year of your presidency? Well, should, should I make? Should I start? I on think that? so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I think that um, the the part that uh, I think has the sort of longer standing value is, is that is um, much greater clarity about our purpose, our mission, why we exist, our val- our values, uh, and if you like the principles on which um, the institution is founded, uh, and what is there to do. Uh, and uh, w- one of the things that, uh, that I have definitely found is that the celebration of the 175th anniversary. Uh, where I've been able, we, we and I have been able to go back and understand why we were set up in the first place, uh, and and that's really reminded me of the uh, of the purpose of the institution, uh, and the the people who set it up in late eighteen forty six and early eighteen forty seven were actually quite clever, uh, and uh, the language they used, of course, was was Victorian or Dickensian by today's standards. Um, but the principles uh, on which the institution was founded of, of helping members and giving an impulse to um, inventions useful, likely to be useful to uh, to mankind, uh, they are the sort of founding principles of the institution. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that the fact that we've been able to sort of reconfirm those, and perhaps re-express them in more modern terms, uh, has um, is the thing that will probably stick in my mind for longest. Um, but also, uh, one very nice little thing that someone mentioned to me uh, recently, um, which suggests that we have actually had some impact over that period. Uh, I was heartened by one member who was kind enough to say to me that, that you and that, me, that is, and Alice, have really put the institution on the map in the last year. Uh, and I felt that even though I, th- I thought we hadn't achieved all that much, uh, it did encourage me to think 
that, that we are on the right track uh, and that we are uh, you know, improving the, the voice uh, of, of mechanical engineering. Yeah, it's always nice when you get that kind of feedback, isn't it, Peter? Definitely. <laughs> Phil, well, where do you feel you are in terms of, of what you'll leave as, as a legacy as president? Well, it, it's still fairly sort of fresh <laughs> since I took over as the president. I'm now into my seventh week. So, but it's, you know, that's about an eighth of the way through. So puts it into a perspective. Uh, and the time goes by really quickly. I'm sure Peter can testify that, you know, he blinks in his year was over. Um, but I, I just would like to say that I think Peter has provided a tremendous sort of springboard for me to do my job for this year. Um, so the, all the excellent work that he did over the last 12 months does actually place me in a much, much better position to actually take things forward. Um, and he's mentioned Alice, and I will mention Alice again. I think Alice is doing a, f- a fantastic job as our chief executive. Uh, she's so dynamic. Um, and she's really picking up, I think, and, and actually implementing all of the the new activities that we need to have within the institution if we are to 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 take that step forward and and, and build the future. So I've I've had my my first trustee board meeting. I've had my first council meeting, and in fact, my second trustee board meeting is just around the corner next week. <laughs> um, and and I actually set out at those two meetings. Um, the, some objectives that I'd like to achieve during the year. And I suppose from a legacy point of view, if I manage to achieve most of those by year ends, then I, I think I'll be happy and feel that I've left behind a legacy that Giles can then build on uh, further as he goes into his presidential year. Uh, and we've got a, a sort of a degree of continuity now taking place, which we didn't have before, in the fact that we've now got two deputy presidents instead of just one president-elect. And I think that's a really good thing for the institution, uh, as yeah. as Clive will be aware that he will pick up the mantle from Giles when he steps down at the end of his presidency. And, and that allows us to have a measure of continuity, looking beyond maybe the sort of just the next 12 months that we didn't have before. Mm. And I, I think that's a really strong benefit to the institution. And, and I'm really looking forward to actually seeing the benefit of that rolling out into the future. That's great. That's great. Giles, you've not even started yet, obviously. <laughs> so what are your hopes and aspirations for the future of the institution? Well, I think, um, as uh, the others have already said, the, um, the, the time as president is, is limited, right? You know, it, it, it it's it's a year in your life, um, uh, and and the most important thing is about continuity of good governance and leadership. That that is fundamentally priority number one uh, for any chair of a board of trustees. Uh, you know we've got a fantastic team that we rely upon, a great trustee board, great staff and executive, etc. Um, and and I think you know you, you you've got to get that you know, squared away and, and be effective to, to run an, a, 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 an organization such as ours. Sure. And we've made great strides in that area um, over the last few years. But, but really for me, uh, like my aspirations for next year are, are, are going to be about taking all of the great strategy work we've been doing after the, over the last couple of years that Peter first started and, and, and I took up the reins on. Uh, we want to be in a position where we are having clear direction going forwards as an organization about what we're about. We're aligning our resources to the strategy. We're aligning our activities 
Because ultimately, we set the ambition of being a world-leading, global, and inclusive engineering membership organization. That is what our vision is for the future. Uh, and, and all of the things that enable that um, for us to be successful um, are, are quite diverse. You know, we've mentioned some of them already uh, in terms of having well-supported staff and volunteers working in close partnership. We've mentioned about having highly functional uh, digital services that enable our global accessibility to be much better than it is at the moment. We talked about having uh, open, collaborative, inclusive culture and behaviours being a really core value within the organisation going forwards. Um, and, and then finally, we've talked about the fact that, you know, this is not something that we're doing uh, on our own. Yeah. Uh, the, the partnership word is so important. And, and forming and creating and sustaining those strategic collaborations with other organizations, both in the UK and internationally, um, is going to be uh, so fundamental to us. So, so really, you know, I, I look at the next, you know, 18 months or so as being about laying those foundations out so that, you know, future trustee boards have the resources uh, at their disposal to enable this strategy to be implemented effectively. Um, that's really what I hope um, that, that we can get out of the next 18 months or so. I think that's a, a lovely aspiration to to end on, Giles. And and knowing the commitments that you all make as presidents, this is not a role that that you just happen upon. This is this is something that you've prepared yourselves for through being on trustee board and so on. And it's it's something that I think um, you should all be very proud of in terms of your contribution to the institution. And as a member, I thank you for for you uh, for doing that for us uh, on on everyone's behalf. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you all today. It's so unusual to get three of you in the room at the same time. <laughs> so thank you very much for taking time out today. And um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how, Phil, how your year progresses and, and Giles, uh, what your year brings for you and um, all of the institution, wherever they may be uh, around the globe. Uh, are right behind you in, in going forward as an institution. Thanks ever so much for joining me. That's all for this month. In next month's episode, we will be live at the Apprentice Automation Challenge, which takes place on the 2nd of September at the MTC in Coventry. We will be talking with the teams taking part about what it takes to solve real world problems and exploring some of the latest technologies to help us around the home. You'll also be able to phone into the podcast live to talk to us about robotics, autonomous systems, and share your thoughts with us on home technologies that have made your life easier. So look out for our dial-in details on our podcast site and on social media. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us, podcast at imeke.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.